Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cavanaugh, Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago. Welcome, everyone. This is Bill Cavanaugh. I'm the Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. And this is another episode of our podcast series, Near and Far, uh, you can check on our website uh, to find the other episodes. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Alexander Martins, who is a theologian and bioethicist from Brazil, who teaches at Marquette University in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he uh, got his PhD as well. And he has a postdoctorate degree in democracy and human rights from the Human Rights Center at the Law School of the University of Coimbra. Uh, in Portugal. He specializes in healthcare ethics and social ethics uh, and has many, uh, many writings, especially uh, his book, The Cry of the Poor, Liberation Ethics and Justice in Healthcare. And he's also a, a professor in the, not only in the Department of Theology, but also in the College of Nursing uh, at Marquette. And he's very active uh, in networks that work on healthcare and theology in Brazil, Bolivia, Haiti, Uganda, and elsewhere. So welcome, Alex. Thank you, Bill. I'm happy to be here. We were delighted to have you uh, participate in our online conference uh, this spring. And uh, I wonder if you could just begin by giving us a little bit of your own background, uh, your own story. How did you get interested in healthcare? How did you get interested in theology? And how did you decide to kind of mix the two? <laughs> That's a, it's a good question and brings me to the memories of my own life. <laughs> uh, well, I have a very interesting journey in, this, in Brazil with the, we call it the basic ecclesial communities the experience of the church in Brazil that has connected a lot of faith and social practices in small communities led by the people. Uh, and uh, as I grew up in a very social uh, challenging reality in terms of uh, injustice and oppression, I have been very connected to the social activism uh, for justice, for better conditions. In, in my country to improve those situations. At the age of 14, unfortunately, I had to leave my parents to try to, to, to find something better in life. And I, I left home and I went to Sao Paulo, the big city of Brazil. And by myself, I lived there with an uncle. And there I get engaged through the church, the community there, and that church, uh, they have like a volunteer work in a hospital to visit the sick. Uh, that's how I start to get connected to the hospital and I get connected to the Order of St. Camillus. That is a Catholic order that serves the sick. So that's how I got connected to the order, get to the church, that social activism to that volunteer shift to more like a healthcare social activism. When I get age to go to college, I have no option to go to college, you know, I was a poor kid, but in Brazil, thanks to public education, I could try my luck to get in a public school, public college. In Brazil, it's it's good, however, it's extremely competitive. 
but I got in a philosophy program, thanks God. And then since the philosophy program, I focus my interest like a lot of in ethics. And because my interest in healthcare, I focus uh, in bioethics. And then eventually I decided to join the Order of St. Camillus. And the St. Camillus asked me, why you don't uh, take nursing classes? to help you and then how I get connected the philosophy background and then I start to have I went to nursing while I finished the, uh, philosophy in the order of San Camillo's and then theology just came naturally after that <laughs> <laughs> philosophy first then theology just yeah. like the old uh, seminary with, education right but with nursing between <laughs> with nursing between that's a wonderful combination yeah um so could you tell us a little bit then about the situation? You've just been back to Brazil for a few months. Could you tell us a little bit about the situation on the ground there with regard to health care and, um, and the political situation as well? Yes, uh, I was in Brazil most part of this summer. And the situation there is very bad because COVID, obviously, we know that, uh, but it's not only COVID. So COVID arrived in Brazil and found a very vulnerable, social vulnerable environment with a lot of lack of political and other leadership. Uh, the situation has become very conflictive in terms of healthcare because COVID on the top of a previous conflict that already exists in the last few years that became very strong is the conflict about the lack of resources for the public health system. Brazil have, has a universal public health system that has been built in the last uh, 35 years. Uh, it's uh, free healthcare, single pay, available for everyone in the country that cover the entire country. It's not perfect, but it provides good care and 80% of the Brazilians, that's the only option they have. Uh, in the last four years, particularly 2016 was a key year when you have the impeachment of the President Dilma Rousseff, uh, what I think was a parliamentary coup. Uh, and then from there you move from a government that has kind of a well, uh, social welfare state to a government that embrace a new liberal agenda. Uh, and one of the things they did right away was to frozen for 20 years all the resources for uh, social uh, programs, including health and education. So the budget for healthcare in 2021 is the same that is in, 20, in 2016 with Brazil having like 5% in average inflation every year. So only this, you can see how the budget decreased, that create a, a, not a collapse, but a very bad situation in the healthcare system that have a structure, but don't have resources to make that structure function for the good of the people. On the top of that, the government, when the election of Bolsonaro opened for the new liberal approach of healthcare, so we, it's interesting, the day one that Bolsonaro uh, started as president, uh, United Health, a big health company, opened a business in Brazil because they couldn't 
operate in Brazil. But if the president promised them if they elect, they will open for the uh, international market of healthcare to operate in Brazil. So the government shifts from public health to sponsor that, uh, what in Brazil call complementary health, that only support about 50% of the Brazilians, 50, five, uh, one five, 50, that's the top reach of Brazil because they're extremely expensive and the model is very similar to the United States. And these have a lot of commercial advertisement of saying clear propaganda on Brazil TV now to say the public system is bad. We need private system. And then carry that conflict, that trying to shape the Brazilian mentality as well. Then came COVID and found that situation extremely fragile. Uh, and in with the president deny the 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 gravity, the the, the bad situation of the COVID, and find a system very fragile. The pub, the private system. Uh, they just help uh, that 15% of the population, but they also uh, get overwhelmed very quickly. They couldn't support their own population, the rich population too. And then the public system actually has doing a better job than the, than the private, even to support those top 15% of the wealthy people. So, uh, but uh, with the president denying, denial, refusing to buy vaccines, and refusing to do some, to enforce measures like mask wearing, social distancing, those kind of measures, the COVID spread very quickly, especially in the most remote areas of the country, like the Amazon area, was the place who had the first collapse. And that's the region I actually worked in Brazil. I was in the Amazon region that came that problem of healthcare, previous, COVID in the top, and then I kind of conclude something, we have the land fightings. Amazon region is an area that has so many uh, public land that was made reservations for indigenous people because the understanding of the Brazilian people when we became democracy again after the dictatorship in the end of 80s, was the indigenous protect the land better than everybody else. And even before I have all those environment scores and their lands belong to them. And you create those in the Brazilian constitution. But then when came the current administration, they have a mentality, the indigenous, they prevent the country from progress. And they don't have an environmental agenda. So they start to support paramilitary groups of farmers to invade the indigenous land uh, and exploit there and start right now is a war. The region I was in a small state of Acre in the region of big Amazon, Brazilian Amazon, uh, we're there in a war against those uh, militias groups supported by farmers and corporations and by the office of the environmental ministry of the presidency. Wow. So that's the situation. In uh, tragically enough, you know, land conflict, environmental issues, COVID. When I was there, we in the community I was serving, we have an outbreak of TB and dengue fever. Oh my! 
So right now, my uh, people work with me. My sister leads the project there. So they are dealing with those uh, four things at once. Wow, wow. So there's a connection between the seizure of land and the health the kind of dual track healthcare system in that there's an ideology of privatization going on in both of them right the this is a very old story uh you assume that the private sector can take care of things better than lands that are held in common or um, a, a kind of common healthcare system you assume that the free market um, where property is in private hands is going to solve uh, all of the all of the ills and so the enclosure movement uh, is still going on now uh, today in in Brazil um, the um, the idea that the free market is going to save us um, it just doesn't seem to ever bear out but um, but it's very lucrative for some people, um, and so the. Um, uh, I wonder if you if you have any comments uh, about that. I mean, in in some ways, when you're talking about healthcare, you're not just talking about healthcare. In other words, you're talking about the whole kind of economic uh, system. Yes, uh, you said very well. Bill. There is a strong connection between healthcare and the economic situation, the views that are dominate the way that economic, economy should be, uh, should be led now, and, and, and how the indigenous deal with the land. So when the Brazilian the Constitution, when the people in the uh, Constitutional Assembly in 1988 wrote a new constitution, they have a question. Does the uh, uh, do the indigenous people want have land as individual property or they want to have a piece of all the communities can do whatever they want the indigenous was unanimous say, we don't have that sense of land belong to a person yeah. there is no the, 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 it's very interesting I learned all the time with them that sense of community the land doesn't belong I don't have my land your land and then you respect that no the land is the land belongs the land, like like the land belongs to the Mother Earth, and you yeah. as a community, we use that for our good and for the good of the land itself as well. So it's a very different perspective. So they decide. So they have those reservations, mainly on Amazon, in where it's not a private property of one indigenous family, another indigenous person. You know, divide in pieces as we do in our Western mentality. It's just a, a big, and they live, and they use, and they go. There is no borders, nothing. Right. Uh, so what, what is the theological basis, like a Christian theological basis for that view of kind of common ownership rather than individual ownership? Yeah. I, I, I would say, first of all, it's not even a common ownership. There is no ownership. God is the owner. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Perfectly. That that right. is the view. Uh, God, the supernatural, is the owner. The land is like a a transcendent entity. I'll put it that way. That we the we has to respect and have to care for because the land provides everything to us as well. That is 
it's theological in the theology well there's many indigenous communities i tell one i i have more uh, contact uh two actually there is a, a tribe the guaranese that's one i worked guaranese so many different variation of the guaranese i work with guaranese most in the what today is bolivia brazil and paraguay Although, you know, those division is made by the, the colonizers, but right. the Guarani country would say that don't respect that. They have conflicts. Say they have a, uh, a view when the land is not doing well, the community are sick. Uh, when the community is sick, or one member of the community is sick, one person is sick, the community is sick, the land is sick. There is that relation of the community take care of the individuals, individuals take care of the community, the community take care of the land, the land take care of the community. Right. It's, how, it's that uh, spirituality, because it's not simply technically speaking, but it's a sense of respect. It's a deep meaning as of love and respect. Another community in the Amazon, now in Acre, uh, the Kashinawas, is the name of the tribe. They have uh, that that deal that the land have their cycles. We cannot do everything anytime we want. Uh, and then the sense they, they have a sense of not uh, accumulating things. It's like that. I I am hungry. I go to the land provide food for me. I don't need to work so hard to have food stocked for another month on the cost of the the exploitate or the suffering of the land. Right. No. I trust in Catholic saying, probably I would say, they trust in the divine providence. Right, right. In the relation our, with the land. It's our daily bread. It's not the bread that we, you know, yes. kind of st store up. And that is uh, a deeply sense that in the Catholic or the theological Christian theology view, uh, is that sense of respect for the land. The, the Pope Francis said, uh, "We have a lot of to learn from those communities because they don't see uh, individuals disconnected from the where they live and from the people they live." decisions are always made uh, is from the other to me and the other is a community or the earth and not from the I what I think should be the best it's mm -hmm. all the the opposite way uh, of course there are uh, limitations I don't want to show here like a romantic visions of the indigenous uh, as humans, they are not perfect as everybody else. Right. However, they have some uh, worldview that has something to teach us. And that worldview is uh, shaped with a spirituality of respect, of tenderness, of community, of caring. And all this is part of our Christian spirituality as well. But sometimes I 
I think sometimes because you became too much influenced by that technocratic Western development that prevent a way to go to that uh, deep root of Christianity that is care. When you see Jesus uh, in the Bible, when a Sikh approach to him, he just he doesn't go to say, oh, do a miracle. Let him imagine Jesus go, I am a doctor, go to surgery. No, he first, he, he interacts with the person. I, I, I love that passage that when he's among the crowd, the, a woman bleeding, touch him, and she, she wants his help. He can just, because he was busy in, in his way to see the, the daughter of Jairus, he can just, okay, you need, oh, okay, heal you go in peace no he stopped it and what you learn with that person show care show tenderness and then he used the the gift he has to heal her i could say put in now we don't do miracles of jesus but think about the healthcare provider i have the gift of the technology that provide me the medicine all those kind of things but that should be used based on that sense of care should be the base. And we have all the technology to make the land produce food for us, those kind of things. That's amazing. But that should be used ground in that sense of care attentiveness for the land. And that sense of care attentiveness the indigenous has and our tradition has as well, the Christian tradition. So that's what you mean when you talk about the caring dimension. Yes. You use that phrase in your work. Yes. Yeah. The, the caring dimension, uh, <clears throat> the, I, I would say, I like, it's a very common expression, the ethics of care, especially like people who, nurses, they, 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 they emphasize a lot, of that, a lot of that perspective of caring. And, but like a, a caring spent in a, perspective of like a, a perspective, a view. See the world, the other, and the other here is everyone and everything, the nature, as some reality that I have to care. But it's not like one way, I care for the other. It's a both way. I care for the other, and the other care for myself. Leonardo Boffi, uh, liberation theologian from Brazil. He has a beautiful book about. Uh, uh, I think I don't saber cuidar in Portuguese. I don't know how that is in English, but I forgot how is the translation in English. But like knowing how to care, and he presents the perspective of caring as something part of our uh, essence, in the sense we want to be cared as well we want to care for mm. so our nature is not only i want to be cared but i want to care but the technocratic paradigm because everything became fragmented to in that idea of infinite progress sometimes suppress that view that is we want to care also, and then you just emphasize we want to be cared, and and that became individualist sometime when I want too much for me, and I don't see that having for me means also share to the others. Right, right. 
Yeah, as um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, right, when one suffers, all suffer together, and when one rejoices, all rejoice together, right, in, in the body of Christ. That's beautiful say that. Yeah. Sorry, beautiful say that because my experience with the Guaranis, that was something I learned very quickly. I, I found a, a boy that one of my experience in the Guaranis uh, who was having problem uh, with alcohol. Unfortunately, it's a very common health issue uh, in indigenous communities. Even here in the United States, they have those issues. So I have a young man, uh, he was uh, 19, 20 at that time, and he was struggling with alcohol. And then uh, I said, well, I want you to help him, but a conventional like rehab place will not work for him. They had tried before, some other groups have tried before, like healthcare. I just start to see how I could try to help him when I understood from their leaders, the community, the indigenous leaders, that his problem was not his problem, was the community problem. The entire community was sick. And the way to help him has to, we had to find an integrated way in the community. When the community, we also start a process of healing together with the boy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all can be healed because he has the alcohol issue, but the community is also sick. And the way to address is not take him out of the community and put him like in a rehab, rehab clinic, as we do here, for example, in, in other realities, but trying to do something integrate in the community. Uh, that was the only way possible to approach uh, without create more uh, drama and damage for the community because before people have tried to use a rehab for him and that has created a huge conflict in the community. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. So when you talk about structural violence and structural sin, it's a sin is a matter of uh, it's something that envelops the the entire community we in in one of my classes we talk the the students kind of debate there's there, there are some kind of people that emphasize the personal nature of sin that if you want to get somebody if you want to stop alcoholism um, it's a matter of uh, kind of personal sin you have to go to the individual and get them to stop drinking and then you're going to have a better community, you know, a better society. And then other people approach it, kind of the Marxist approach, that the reason people are drinking is because society is messed up and we need a kind of revolution, and then people will stop uh, drinking. But what I hear you saying is that it's kind of, it's you don't have to choose between those two things. The personal is the political, the, the, the individual uh, problem is the community problem all at the same time. Yes, uh, I believe, and based on my experience, we don't have to pick one and other over the other. Uh, there is a, a relationship between both. The individual is part of a political society, uh, and the political society are shaped by individuals. Uh, there is a, a, a connection in both in the relation that we can't uh, simply dismiss to favor one approach to the other. And 
when you talk about structural violence, well, about alcoholism in indigenous communities, it's very interesting because you can track that historically, how that was purposely introduced alcohol in communities by uh, colonizers and others to to make them weak, to enslave them, to exploit them. The, at least in South America, the indigenous communities, they always have a strong tradition with uh, smoking and, uh, and some hallucinogenic substances. Okay. Uh, like, like, for example, something very popular in the indigenous community I work in Acre is the, something called ayahuasca. It's a kind of a tea that they have some visions and they, however, is that substances never has been used in individual base. It's always in a ritual thing. Ah. It's like a liturgy. You don't never had, historically speaking, I, I, at least in South American tribes, I don't have, I didn't find in my research any evidence that show individuals having get addictive to a, a substance, to a smoke. Or like, for example, in Bolivia, they have the habit to chew the coca leaf. Right. Uh, and that always has been a community. In Bolivia, it's very interesting because when the Spaniards arrived there, they discovered that the coca leaves could uh, make them uh, more resistant to pain to work in the gold mines. Oh. That they introduced this to make them to use that in outside of the rituals. Uh, you know, that when you criticize, oh, Bolivians use that now, and we remember to say why Bolivians are using that as individual base was a thinking to, created in the past to make them uh, stronger to pain so they can work born till death in the gold mines of Bolivia to the Spaniards. That's the wow. process. So you have to see that historical perspective that's political, that is social, and then show how the structural violence has been present in history and is still present uh, today. But that being said, you have the individual. When a, a person in a community are sick or having troubles, we have that historical and political context of oppression, but we have a person that suffers individually. And that person deserves attention and care because this person is important for the community. And the community will not be well until all the members are well. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And be well is that is the concept of the indigenous health. Uh, Bolivia has uh, emphasized that I'll call uh, living well. That is very different perspective of healthcare. It's not your sick and take care of, the, of your disease. But uh, health is being uh, vivi, like living well. So, and being vivi doesn't mean oh, I am sick and I don't have the disease anymore, but mean that integration in the community. Uh, and sometimes I still sick. For example, maybe I, I I have cancer, and I still sick, and I am a, I am in my path to death shortly because of the cancer, but. I still live in well because the community is still with me and give me some dignity and some joy and meaningful experience until my death. Wow, that's a very different approach than, than we usually find in our 
uh, in our approach to healthcare, where death is the enemy and it's a war against cancer, you know, the kind of military metaphors that are so often used in healthcare. Well, death is a very, or not niche. There is a indigenous of a tribe in Brazil, Krenak. The name of the tribe is Krenak from the southeast of Brazil. Uh, and a leader, he's a uh, international speaker. His name is uh, Amilton Krenak. He's, I think it's worth one day you maybe talk to him. He's a great man. And he talks about, like, for example, he said about his tribes, we don't die. Only our body that disappears. Mm. All the noises of the in the jungle of the trees, that's it's still us. I'm say he said I I hear my ancestors, I hear my family, I hear my grandparents, my parents through the nature. Yeah. And then in his community, he said that provides him even a bigger sense to care for the nature, because there is where they still alive in communicating through the sounds of nature with those who still have a living body. <laughs> How wonderful. Right. So um, I wonder if you can say a little bit about um, uh, the combination of liberation theology and healthcare. It sounds like the approach that you're advocating to healthcare is really very much kind of from the bottom up, like listening to, um, to people, especially uh, poor people without a lot of resources um, about what health actually is. And I wonder if that's something that you picked up from liberation theology or what the, what the kind of cross, cross fertilization is there. Uh, liberation theology, first of all, uh, is not a thing. Sometime here in the United States, in, in theology circles, you talk liberation theology as like a, a one thing separate, as like oh, a, a theological discipline. I see liberation theology, and at least Latin American liberation theology, most of you agree with me, with all different views, is a perspective. Perspective that will shape your way of doing theology. And and what's the difference in, in that shape to do theology? Because it's from the, a new lens and the lens of those at the bottom of society. In in Brazil, the liberation does say the lens from the people, from the povo. Uh, no, it's kind of weird because people in English is not exactly people, just plural of person sometimes. Right. In, in Spanish, Portuguese, ling in Roman language, uh, like like pop populi, uh, populus in Latin and a singular and populi plural because it's like a sense of a collective uh, entity that could be plural could be the, so it's not uh, could be peoples uh, it's not only a group of individuals but have an identity together mm. and then the liberation theology was understand that the people who best represent o povo, o pueblo or, or or the people of God, like say the, the Vatican II image, right. is those who are poor. It, that's in Latin American context. Is where the majority is, where the the faith is experienced more intensely. Uh, and in in that reality, we make theology. Gustavo Gutierrez say, liberation theology is a new way of doing theology. Because then we do theology from that reality where the people 
Uh, and that will change. Joint to the people in the United States, it will be one thing because the context is different. Joint to the people, the poor people in, in Brazil, it will be another thing, although can have similarities, but because they experience different historical situation. So liberation theology provide that new lens in which the people or the poor or the oppressed, they have something to offer. They are not only recipients of something, that's what, how the colonizers came to Latin America and the Portuguese and the Spanish, they came with a sword in one hand and a cross in the other hand, and then try to impose the faith and the work on those people. Uh, we know I like a top-down approach. This is not was is not acceptable. Should not be accepted that time, but today is not acceptable. Even more clear, we should integrate with them and not see them as passive recipients of something where we have to give them, but see them as active, contri active, sorry, contributors of a process. So liberation theology emphasize that a lot. So then preferential option for the poor became it's hard because it's our preferential option for the poor is an option to join the poor, to listen to them, to learn from them. At the same time, we offer something we have, but we offer something in a process that I call mutual learning, in which you learn from each other. The benefits of the development of Western medicine, it's amazing. We want that, right? Right. However, we want that in an interaction with communities in their own worldview, their own perspective, in which that the development of medicine can learn from what people have to offer in the reality from below, and that community can learn from that development and benefit from each other. Yeah. So. That's liberation theology, and that's healthcare. So, in my perspective, uh, never go to a place to impose anything. Even if so, okay, I go to the indigenous people, uh, vaccinations are objectively good. Yes, I don't question that. But there is a way I can work on that around with community there to take advantage of the knowledge and then we learn they learn the vaccinations are important as we learn how you can make that more efficient and integrate in that community so and i conclude uh that the answer to this question will be with a very simple example very quickly i was in haiti once uh and then you have a, a complaint from the doctors that the haitians who has heart issues and need to have heart uh, medication to control, especially the blood pressure. Haiti has a huge problem with heart failure. Uh, it's a huge. So they come to the hospital, they get the medication control, they go back to the community and then they come, have to come back like two or three weeks after to get more medication and, and do the follow-ups. So the doctor was complaining, they are not coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they blame the, the Haitian people for that. Uh, and then one Haitian nurse said to the to the team, I was part of that team, and that discussion said, uh, are we being fair to say it's their fault and take responsibility out of our shoulders 
what is happening, why they are not coming back to the follow-ups, and then they will eventually come when they are very sick and they need uh, inpatient care. Well, that was a big problem, overwhelmed the hospital. Uh, and then she said, and I said, well, I, I think you have a fair question. How about you go to where they live and see what's going on? And then we decided that even against most physicians, you don't want, oh, I don't live to the hospital. No, let's go to the community and see what's going on. And then we start to learn they're not coming back, not because they don't want or because they don't care or because they are like lack of gratitude for the healthcare they're receiving, but because the situation, most of them sometimes they have to travel hours by foot or by animal, like a donkey or something, or in a little car that have a, like dozens of people in a car that's supposed to, to have three or four, <laughs> and, and they have to pay for that. They pay like, uh, I don't know in American money, but let's say they have to pay $1 to, to come, but that $1 can provide food for two days for the children or for themselves. Right. Uh, they will choose the food, especially for those who are parents. They will not take the money to away from the milk they buy to feed their children to come to the hospital to get the pill. So, but we can learn that only if you take the step to go and join them. And that's what liberation theology teaches us. Then when you join them, we learn to be efficient with our resources and to be more integrative in the community, to get the trust of the community and to help them in the best way. We should not be just cross our arms in the hospital waiting them to come and complain when they don't, but go there and be part of the community and be companions of that healing process. Right, right. Yeah, Paul Farmer talks a lot about that. Um, I, I know you've worked a little bit with uh, Paul Farmer, famous doctor, um, teaches at Harvard, but runs clinics in Haiti and has been, uh, he co-authored a book with Gustavo Gutierrez about um, kind of listening, uh, listening to the poor as the, the kind of introduction to healthcare as the, as the first thing you need to do to determine um, what what people need to do. I wonder if you can say a little bit uh, about your experience with Dr. Paul Farmer. Well, uh, yes, oh, Paul Farmer is doing a great job in his organization. The example I gave is exactly happened in a, in Paul Farmer's organization hospital mm. in uh, Partners in Health in the district of Mibale in the Plateau Central in, uh, in Haiti. So was in, in his his organization hospital, but he was not there at that discussion, but it's exactly his spirit is uh, in what he trying to lead his, his team in his organization. Don't make uh, conclusions right away to blame the poor for their own problems, for the, uh, in, uh, join them, listen to them. Uh, he likes the word a companionship, but the book he, you mentioned, he wrote with Gustavo Gutierrez, both mentioned, in the company of the poor. That's the title of the book, uh, because that should be the perspective. Uh, we are not there to to provide, simply provide something to the poor. We are there to be a companion in which we exchange. 
uh, we provide what we have. If I am the doctor, if I'm the nursing, I have those skills that can help them. But at the same time, I'm open to learn from them, to learn what is actually creating the problems they are facing and how we as a community, the poor and us among them, can take uh, an action uh, to do something. Uh, it's, it's a partnership, partnership with the poor. Uh, and, and Paul Farmer particularly is inspired about the liberation theology and the, the motto of his organization is the preferential option for the poor in healthcare. That's the, is the mission of Partners in Health. Uh, and he and everybody in his organization, those I, I worked with, this, became like part of the culture of the organization, preferential option for the poor. And okay. preferential option for the poor means, first of all, not being away from the poor. Even because what happened, Bill, I had an experience in Haiti, and I saw that also in my work in Africa and in Uganda. Sometimes uh, physicians or health professionals or missionaries go with the best intention to help the community, but they still away. They, they create a separate community where they eat separately, they don't eat the food people eat, they have special treats, they don't become part, they don't integrate. They, uh, and that's not companionship. Uh, so that creates sometimes more conflict in, in the community because the community then don't trust. That favor racism and that perspective, that's colonialism. There are some group of philosophers like uh, Boaventura de Souza Santos from the University of Coimbra. He, he has a, a criticism like, to be careful because NGOs is a good, many NGOs became a soft version of colonialism because you don't work to empower and make them independent, but you want them to be dependent on us because you need them to make me feel good or looks good back home. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and then if that happened in Haiti, after the earthquake, you know, many aid came and right, and then creates some kind of a parallel economy. Like they have in, in Port au Prince, there is a part in the higher part. They create a, a, a I would say, a first world city inside with grocery store, everything, only for United Nations people, organizations, people. They, why they're living that parallel life and they live there to go to see people in in the that suffer in Port au Prince. They're not part of the community. That's that's as Boaventura said is is a colonialism. We want right. the poor, right? Because right. we are far away. I'm very critical of some philanthropy work. Uh, I support. I think philanthropy it's important. Poor farmers' work is basically supported by philanthropy. However, you have to be very careful because sometimes our philanthropy is not to help, but to keep them poor. So you can enjoy our status quo and also enjoy, that's the, the evil. And I think that's a sin, a social sin. Also enjoy that benefit of being a great man, a great woman. Right. So the people that love me because I am provide them food and they don't understand 
the way I'm doing, I'm keeping them poor and depending on me. But I'm exploiting them without them know. When you join, that liberation theology helps us. The first process is conscientization, that big word, like uh, make aware awareness that came from Paulo Freire and Paul Farmer mentioned that in his books too. Make the poor, help them to understand that process. Then I go back when I started when I was young, my my teen years in the Blaze Ecclesial community was the process to understand how the oppression occurred in the minds of us, of the people. And people in that context, why my dad, my mom, and my family couldn't read and write was intentional. Because if they don't know, they don't promote the difference. They don't right. change. They accept, they think is the historical determinism. Well, it's my fate. I was born to be poor. I will be poor forever. You know, it'll be like those Aristotelian vision. A slave was born to be slave. It cannot change. And that uh, we have to be careful not be promoting that when you do our work. That conscientization or awareness of the communities, it's very important. And we will not be able to promote that with them if you don't if you don't join them. It just being that kind of charity work apart. Right, right. Well, let me ask you a little bit uh, more about that then, um, because it's interesting. On the one hand, um, you you see the benefits of a healthcare system that is not privatized, but um, has state support. Um, but the state is a kind of top-down sort of mechanism, and you are talking about a kind of bottom-up approach. How do you um, how do you think about uh, the the role of the state uh, in healthcare? Um, do you think that uh, healthcare ought to be kind of coming from the grassroots uh, with state support? Um, how do you how do you envision the how do you deal with that kind of tension between the top down and the bottom up? Good, good question. Uh, I would say to you that the state has yes, a top-down approach, but uh, the state uh, doesn't have to be that ours. Depend how you organize the system. And I, I will tell based on my experience of how the Brazilian system is structured. So yes, it's top-down approach to the system, and I'm referring here to the Brazilian system, in the sense is funded by the state, but that funding comes from all the community in a very system of contributive and distributive justice that go back to the Catholic social teaching. So we contribute the way we can, but everybody receives in the same way. Uh, so, however, if it's, it's a, the state, they have a top-down approach in the sense they structure nationally. However, the way you lead the system and the way you deliver healthcare still can be a bottom-up approach. And I will explain basically how the Brazilian system is structured. Uh, the Brazilian system is structured based in called health councils. Each neighborhood, depending how, how many people live in an area, each neighborhood, sometimes a small town, or sometimes each neighborhood, have their 
community centers in which people from the community are part and they participate in the decision making process. So the run, the, 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 although it's a state uh, universal health care, they, one of the principles is decentralization. So they are run by people at the community level with those councils. And then we have that local level, city level, municipalities. Then you have state, so big decisions that, for example, like COVID, now we need more some kind of a more uh, coordinate measures. And then, and then you have federal decisions, special federal decisions will be more about budget, how much the government will be decide. But that budget is decided based on what the communities at the border level has been built and asked. I give an example in my community where my parents live. You have that council, and that, that council is shaped by, you call three segments, three kinds of people, healthcare workers, healthcare administrators, and the community. So you have, and those councils, they, the government provide for them education, how understand healthcare, what they need to know, there's great programs. I was in the public healthcare system working, the Minister of Health in 2010 to 2012. We created that time an online platform that people can be educated to work in those communities local level. Uh, so there, they decide together, they get together to make decision-making, and they can prioritize what is the focus, for example. In my parents' community, previous COVID, one of the decisions, because they have a lot of dengue fever there, was prioritize actions to address, to prevent dengue fever. Uh, the community inside that. The, the government we will send the resources based on what the community asks for. Some communities have a high level of elderly population, so they need uh, geriatric care. They need a, a doctor for that. They will request that the doctor, we have a geriatric care. Other community, maybe it's a very young community, and they need more pediatric care, for example. Or is a community struggling a lot with uh, youth, uh, issues like STDs, alcoholic drugs, they will make the plan, the decision, they request, they have resources to address them. All that is building uh, from the bottom of the community and the manager, the manager of the system or the local, they have to follow the decisions of that community council that everyone can participate, everyone wants. And then come the most interesting, the community became what you call in Brazil, it's not a good translation, but I, you understand what I mean, social control. The community are responsible to control the health administrator if they are doing what they decided. And that is legal, and that is a, is a, it's not, it's a institution, was institutionalized by the government, mm. by the constitution in 80s that if there is instances, if they are not doing, they can report that as, a, and it's considered public fate to the, the state or local prosecutor, they will establish an investigation to see if they are doing what the community decided. Yeah. So that's how work was uh, built to 
work the Brazilian system. So all community-based, and I, uh, I went with an example of mental health. Mental health is a big problem. We all know that, and sometimes it's, have a, it's neglect that a treatment of mental health, even in the United States and many places in the world. And Brazil, mental health has been one experience of this community approach that has helped a lot. Before that approach, Brazil, you build those big hospitals and centers to isolate people with mental health. With that approach, the person who uh, every level of mental uh, health necessity integration the community with the community care for the person with of course the professionals but the person is still in their family and the health center is not okay you take care of your child has a mental health issue and they'll buy your own give medication no the community go to assist you the doctors know where you live the, the nurses visit you that is the called healthcare workers that create that bridge and then the the person who have a mental health disease with any spectrum for very moderate or very high uh, issue, they are part of that community in the way they can be integrated in the education again, they can integrate in the working life and social well-being without being isolated in a, in a center or in a hospital or those kind of things. I, I think uh, this is a, a bottom-up approach, of course, with that top-down perspective, because the state is still being the, the, the funding mm. source. Uh, and the they state is still being also the one who creates policies. And that's start the problem we have today. This system has been dismantled now by the top creating policies to prevent the community to do what they had doing for years. Oh. We start that in 1991, and has been improved from 1991 until 2016. We have walked up. 2016, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've frozen all the fundings, and then the legislators, the House of Representatives, became much more conservative. They have passed laws, and that's the research I'm doing currently. They have passed laws to prevent the development of the public system and to favor the development of a private sector in health. Mm. So because they can't end the public system because it's a constitutional thing, to end that they had to change the constitution, they can dismantle it and to make them to be a very small system that doesn't work. And that is exactly what happened right now. Since 2016, many policies has been approved by the House of Representatives uh, dismantling uh, the system, prevent his from the system from its normal operation. And, and doing that, they're the, doing other policies favoring the private system. One example is what I said, make uh, a healthcare system insurance-based. With like the same system in Brazil, if insurance-based work in Brazil was not like United States, there is no copay. It would be like a very simple insurance policy. You have insurance, when you need, you have it, and you have all things. Now we have a law that was passed in 2018 that uh, allowed 
international insurance company to operate in Brazil, to have co-payment, high deduct, everything you know very well from the sure. United States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do well, do well. Well, um, you know, um, this has been a really rich uh, conversation, uh, Alex. I really appreciate this. I don't want to end on a, a down note. Uh, Pope Francis has called us to both be critical of the kind of structural violence that's out there and also be people of joy and hope. Um, let's end. Uh, let me just ask you uh, if you can give us a, a sign of hope uh, that you see for the, for the near future. Well, I see a sign of hope. And I think the first sign of hope I see come from our leadership in the church is the Pope Francis message to the communities all over the world in in Brazil and other Latin American places. His message has touched deeply the heart of indigenous and the poor people. Uh, I think I see that as a sign of hope because for many years, those who work from the communities inspired by liberation theology has been criticized a lot by the authorities of the church. It's the first time that the, the main leadership of the church, Pope Francis, have uh, support those communities. And most of support with words, he has met some of those people. He now is preparing for a, a new meeting of the social movements. He had two meetings I read, and he's prepared a third one, where those people, indigenous, you go and see the Pope. That's, it's, it's amazing. It's for their faith, uh, for the inspiration. And, and another sign of hope is the resistance. You know, uh, although sometimes we get so sad what we see, especially in social media. Social media doesn't help much. They give a very bad picture. When you go to those communities now with COVID, for example, we see people helping each other with very small resources. And I see that in everywhere, even here in the United States. People being creative right. to find ways. And that it's beautiful. It's a big sign of hope. And I think it's very evangelical, being creative in your reality. You maybe don't have the best health technology for you, but you still have your heart, hands, your time to find creative ways to support each other. And and, and this, it's, it's inspiring. Uh, um, I had seen like in, in the indigenous people in Brazil uh, now with their fight against the militias groups. Such a big, beautiful expression of solidarity among them in the way, even in that deep suffering, they find ways to care for each other. And it's, it's beautiful. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, crises bring out the worst in people, but it can also bring out the best uh, in people, and I'm really grateful for uh, the way that you held up um, these examples of of joy and hope uh, in a in a difficult situation. This has been a wonderful conversation, Alex. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander Martins, uh, professor of theology and nursing 
at Marquette uh, University. Um, thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Bill. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Finnegan Chu, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology on the web, Facebook, Twitter, Vimeo, and YouTube.